it's such an honor to interview everybody who's willing to come to the studio and sit with me. But a lot of the times it's people that I've met, fortunately, through other people. And sometimes I go out of my way to really pin down somebody because I feel confident about what we've been putting out here. And Ivy Knight is definitely one of the reasons why I started doing Speaking Duck. Ivy Knight uh, has put Toronto on the map in a lot of ways. She is an independent writer, cookbook writer, journalist. She's touched such great broadcasting and, and news outlets like Vice and Toronto Star. And she's even put out her own website that she regularly updates called Swallow. And she is really one of the key people in Toronto when it comes to food and pop culture. She is very well-traveled and worked with the likes of people like Jamie Kennedy. And she's been able to write cookbooks, cookbooks that are on Amazon right now. You know, uh, she, the, the best part about Ivy is she's so chill and just down to earth about it. She's kind of shocked when I told her how, you know, honored I was to have her and how I look up to her. And I've been reading publications from her before she was even, you know, known necessarily for her vice works and stuff that she's just done locally in Toronto. Sitting with Ivy Knight, you learn, you, you understand why the industry is a certain way. And she even will keep saying in the interview that she doesn't always have the right answers. Or if she did, she wouldn't be where she is today. And she's just very modest and humble and very DIY. And as you'll hear, very punk rock in her sensibility and, and this, this understanding of the industry and, and how to work for it. And I just have so much respect for her and I have so much more respect now that I actually got to sit down with her for the hour. So without further ado, you know, Ivy Knight, Vice Magazine and Toronto's own from Swallow Daily on Speaking Duck. Thank you again, Ivy Knight. You've written for some of my favorite things, Vice Munchies, but Swallow, which is your own publication, if I'm understanding that correctly. Yep, SwallowDaily.com. Tell me about starting in, not in Toronto, where did you grow up? You're clearly not from here. Are you from Austin? No, I was born in Alert Bay in British Columbia. Oh, so you're Canadian. I am, and I grew up in Prince Edward Island, and then moved to Vancouver after high school, met my husband, and we moved to Austin for a few years before we moved to Toronto. So was it a mutual love of food that brought you and your husband together? Because I know he writes with you. He does. It wasn't a mutual love of food. He is a retired rowing coach. He he was in between positions in Vancouver, and he was working at this restaurant, I, I use that term loosely, called White Spot. And I got a job there as a hostess, and that's where we met. Was that your foray into the world of food? I had worked at a fish and chips place. It was just uh, bumming around, not the easiest jobs to get, you know, just being a hostess or a server. But I didn't get into food as a career until I was living in Austin. And then I started cooking for what, real. What makes Austin 
known for its food that most cities try to emulate, but unsuccessfully so? I don't know about that. At the time, uh, the emphasis in that city really was non-food. It was all about music, which is the biggest, their big thing, the live music capital of the world. But I was um, there as a visitor. My husband had a work visa and I didn't. So I was getting really bored and watching Food Network all the time. And uh, I decided I wanted to cook. So I came back to Canada for six months and cooked at a restaurant in Kingston and uh, then went back to Texas. And, and started cooking there before we moved to Toronto. So you don't really have, from what it sounds like, no official culinary training. The first restaurant I worked in, Shea Piggy in Kingston, everyone in that kitchen was uh, self-taught or learned on the job, and they were very, very anti-culinary school. Even though I had thought about possibly going to culinary school, they wiped the idea right out of my head. And I'm really glad I didn't. Why? Because I don't cook anymore. <laughs> and because it's extremely expensive and you get paid so little when you're cooking. And I cooked for 10 years. But at the five-year mark, I knew I did not want to be a head chef. I didn't have the right temperament for it. I wanted to get out of the kitchen. So I'm glad I didn't have – I'm glad I don't have student loans. So you attribute – your want to be in the industry because you were watching the Food Network board? Or there has been something earlier on in your childhood or, you know, your family or, you know, they say that you have to be crazy to want to work in that industry. Well, I wanted to learn how to cook and I was sort of teaching myself a bit, although I did learn a lot growing up because my parents were hippies, so everything was made from scratch. I didn't really know what to expect until I got into my first kitchen and the fast pace and the crazy culture really appealed to me. So that's what got me hooked. Yeah. Do you still have an appreciation yourself for cooking? Not for others, obviously you do. But you know, sometimes when you stand on your feet for 15 hour days in a hot kitchen, you just never want to cook a meal ever again. Yeah, I don't ever want to go back to those long days. Uh, I don't think I could handle it. But I still love cooking at home. And I do miss the the sort of dance that you get into with your crew when you're working at top speed and, and when everything's going smoothly and it's just like all coming naturally, that's cool. As you get older, that the brutal labor of it becomes harder to handle. And the mental labor too. There's a lot of just physically draining stuff, but on top of that, you have <clears throat> relationships, you have suppliers, you have patrons you have to deal with, you have to stay current or be able to execute your style of cooking to a certain expectation night in, night out. We live in a city where there's quantity more so than there is quality. And I think with any metropolitan city, you're going to get a lot less quality restaurants and those stand out. Whereas the quantity, the majority of the restaurants is kind of what's overshadowing the quality. And you also get this sense that, okay, Toronto's this food city because there's food on every block. There's 10 restaurants in a row. But I don't think that's the case. I think I think there's better cities out there that are, I, I would say Montreal does it a lot better and they don't get the, the same kind of praise where there's more quality. They, they, they have chefs that really go above and beyond expectation where in Toronto, you can find a lot of mediocre cooking. Um, I think that the Toronto food scene is booming, but it's also an emerging scene. I know talking with Dave McMillan from Joe Beef in Montreal, and he's said this in interviews before, but Joe Beef wouldn't exist um, except for the people in this city. So the diners are adventurous enough to embrace a restaurant like Joe Beef, whereas if they had opened in Toronto, he doesn't feel like they could have m made a go of it. 
back then, possibly now. It's exciting to be here at this time to see, because when I first moved to the city in 2001, it, the scene was not like this at all. Every week, you're reading about openings and closings. That wasn't the case uh, 14 years ago. Um, so yeah, it's it's exciting and... I don't know. It's vibrant. And I, I deal with a lot of American chefs and in the past, trying to get them to, trying to get interest to come here was sort of not a big draw, but that's changed in the last few years. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that? Um, I think that David Chang and Daniel Balud coming here. Momofuku. Momofuku. Yeah. I, I think that got the Americans attention because. They, they stick to their own and they support their own. But once we had a few of their own here, it was like, oh, that's a city worth looking at. If Chang's going there, then maybe, you know, there's a reason. And I think that helped a lot. You think he came here because Toronto is so multicultural and we also have, you know, your hip white patrons, but we also have a huge Korean community and a huge Asian community that also are huge foodies. You go to Markham, I know my favorite place is uh, Fisherman's Lobster House, and it's like an unknown to anybody downtown, but you go to Markham and it's a staple. It's a, an expensive, interesting one, but that kind of stuff can't exist in downtown Toronto, and it won't. People don't know how to, to approach it, but the Asian communities, they eat that stuff up, no pun intended. Do you think that, you know, Chang saw this ability to approach it as a multicultural city, or is it because Toronto's a metropolitan like New York? <laughs> I don't know. I think he picked it because he's a sports fanatic. And we've got the Raptors and the Blue Jays and it's the Leafs. It's so much more simple than I would have ever expected. And I know he he had said, I've only had a conversation with him once. And he said when Danny Bowen was um, planning to open another restaurant outside of San Francisco, David Chang said, make sure you pick a place that doesn't take forever to get to and that you really love to be. And he said, opening in Australia, he loves being in Australia, but the travel is so hard. So I think Toronto is just like... So easy to get back and forth between Toronto and New York. So I think that was a draw as well. Other than Momofuku, what are the other kind of American restaurants that have infiltrated Canada and Toronto? What's that guy's name that was in the Thompson Hotel? Scott Conant? I forget the name of his restaurant, but that flopped and that's closed. I don't really know other than that. I, I mean, the Daniel Balud, they're doing a Renault revamp and they'll be opening for TIFF with a new, I think, more rustic bistro rotisserie chicken type deal. Okay. So that should be cool. What trends do you see coming to Toronto that you uh, saw in... Oh, I'm not a trend forecaster. I've... Not a forecaster. Things that you've seen that have slowly trickled to Toronto. Oh, Like I cheesecake or the milk bar or tacos, you know? Like I feel like we're emulating a lot of the South by Southwest crew that are coming to infiltrate into Toronto and be hip and butter toast was, was a big one for our butter and coffee, all these kind of New York trends that are kind of odd. I think with Instagram and Twitter... If something's happening anywhere in the world and you spot it, it can be become an influence so fast. Um, I don't remember where it began, the pork fat candle. Do you know about this? No. <laughs> I don't what? know where it started, but basically at some restaurant, what they did is they made like a pillar candle out of pork fat and then they set it on the table and light it like a candle and then the fat would start to melt and they would... That's your bread and butter, basically, service. So that... You know, chefs all over the world started seeing that and the pork candle started popping up everywhere. So it's if that was your original idea, you can't really hold on to it for very long. 
That is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Do you frequent the States still quite a bit? I do. Yeah. Where were you last? Yeah. I was in San Francisco a few weeks ago. I'm heading there pretty soon. Give me some tips. Where should I go? Well, I mostly hung out in Chinatown because my one friend there is, she's a Chinese food expert. So, and she's writing a cookbook and a guide to dim sum. Both come out next year. So we spent most of our time places I didn't even know the name of checking out dim sum. We did cruise by Danielle Steele's mansion, which was pretty impressive. The romance writer. Okay. (laughs) Those romance novels definitely made her a pretty penny. I definitely gave you the biggest blank stare to that name. You did. (laughs) She's a very trashy uh, romance novelist who's written like, a thousand books that are all basically the same, just the hair colors change. How does San Francisco's Chinatown compare to Toronto's Chinatown or even New York's Chinatown? Well, that's what I was wondering about because I had never been to San Francisco. I mean, I'd been, but it didn't really count. It was too short of a visit. So it was my first time really spending a bit of time there. And it's very similar. The smells, the busy sidewalks, you know, the crazy exotic ingredients. And yeah, it was very similar. But it was fun with this woman, Carolyn Phillips, because she introduced me to all sorts of dim sum that I'd never tried before just because I didn't really know what it was. So she gave me a quite a dim, dim sum lesson. So you're working on quite a few books and a few that have already been released on Amazon, one being The Everyday Squash Cook, the most versatile and affordable superfood, and uh, JK, the Jamie Kennedy cookbook. What's it like working on a a book yourself with your husband, Carrie. Am I, I got mm-hmm. that right? Uh, and then working with Jamie Kennedy on a book. I mean, that's, what are the parallels? What, what, what do you find is the same thing with every cookbook? I'd say the constant is that everyone is completely different. So I've, I'm working on a third now and beginning a fourth next month. All of the books I've I've done or am working on are all collaborations. So with Jamie Kennedy, it was an ama- it was an amazing process. He's incredible. There was no coming up with recipes because he has you know forty years of cooking under his belt. So he has all of his recipes. It's a matter of choosing which ones should go in the book. Curating. Yes. Whereas with my husband and I and our co-author Rob Firing, we had to come up with the recipes. We were coming up with recipes and testing them and figuring out which ones would go in and which wouldn't. So it was a bit of a different process. How much squash do you think you consumed during the making of that cookbook? You don't find squash in our house (laughs) as often now. But uh, yeah, we ate a lot of squash. Any other foods you're sick of because you've just had it way too much or you're just like, I'm tired. I I don't need another chorizo taco ever in my life. I can't think of any. But squash is up there. Well, it was up there. It's been a year since the book came out. So I think we're fine now. We're back on it. But I got really sick of it for a while, for sure. Tell us about one of your favorite recipes from the book. Hmm. I think the zucchini latkes are a favorite. Um, Food of my people. Yeah. So the zucchini latkes, is, that's a really good recipe. Um, that's actually really smart. And I've seen it done in, in some way, a lot more chivey than zucchini, but it, that totally works. Yeah, it does. Especially with sour cream on it. Yeah. And you sort of have this illusion that it's healthier. Because it's got a little well, green. Yeah, absolutely. The green helps. Yes. That's why the chives also worked for it too, right? Cool. Mm-hmm. That's great. Squash is definitely one of those superfoods that are kind of missed, you know, so easy to cut one in half, roast it off, and then do whatever you want. with The, the possibilities are endless with a food like squash. Totally. And we also looked into pumpkin because they're related. So we started doing stuff with pumpkin and basically discovered that pumpkin puree in a can is like a canned superfood. You don't have to do anything to it. 
You don't have to buy a whole pumpkin and roast it and scoop out the, the flesh. You can buy it in a can so it's like ready to go. And the only ingredient in that can is pureed pumpkin. Nothing else is added. So it's a really great thing to add to muffins or to mash in with, you know, mashed potatoes. It's a good thing to sneak in to get your kids. Appreciating the flavors. Yeah. And just to get more nutrients into whatever you're trying to feed them. I guess it's another superfood squash in general. Pumpkin in that family Mm -hmm. has a lot of, how did you decide that you're like, this has so much nutrient, you know, advantages. How did you decide I want to do a cookbook on the squash? Well, I, I didn't at all. I, (laughs) Rob Firing, who works at HarperCollins came up with the idea and he, asked us to come on board and help him with it because he looked into all the nutrition. Everything that wasn't strictly recipes was all his area of expertise. And so he wanted some people who could cook. So that's why we came on board to test recipes. I prefer pumpkin pie from a can of pureed pumpkin. I think some of the best pumpkin pie comes out of a can. Just personal... No, uh, I agree. Yeah. Well, you. it's also to get the proper pumpkins for a pie. They're called pie pumpkins and you don't often see them. So if you were trying to make pie out of a jack-o'-lantern pumpkin, it's not going to be very good. But it's also Which so is what much- most people do. I don't know. Because it's just there. I mean, just saying like if it's Halloween, they're going to scoop it out. They're going to like, oh, I'm going to make a pie out of this. And they're like, well, this is not what grandma used to make. Well, grandma used to take it out of a can of, yeah. pu- of pureed pumpkin. Stick with the can. Back to Jamie Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Have you tried his new restaurant, Windows? Yeah, I went to Windows a few years ago when I was in Niagara Falls. It's a pretty spectacular view at night with the falls all lit up. Yeah. What separates Jamie's cooking from the rest of the world? I think Jamie, you know, stands alone as a chef because he's such an incredible person. He's such an incredible teacher. We're very lucky in this city to have the benefit of all the years that he's been cooking and teaching all the kids who've come through his kitchens and then sending them out to work in our restaurant industry. As he did at Gilead. Gilead and and the wine bar everywhere. We benefit from that in that we get young cooks who've been mentored and taught by and learned from this incredible guy who's who's very calm and patient, brilliant at what he does. I mean, the more you can instill in a young cook the proper ways to behave in a kitchen, you know, show them how to work and respect each other, the better the industry is going to be. So that's the biggest thing I think that Jamie's done for this city. What intrigues you to try a new restaurant? Maybe it's not the press. Maybe it's just from your own research because we have such a turnaround. And sometimes by the time you get around to trying a new restaurant, maybe not even there anymore. So what's keeping them around and what's intriguing you to go attend these restaurants? I'm I'm interested in every restaurant that opens, but it's almost, it's impossible to get to them all. I try not to head to a place too soon after it's opened, just so they have time to smooth out any wrinkles. It's a, it's a strange industry in that you may have the best concept or the best location and the best people and it may still may not fly or, you know, timing, maybe your timing's off by a bit. So it's, it's a tough game, but the restaurants that hit and, and stick, you know, we get some really quality, great places like the places that Anthony Rose has been opening and will continue to open. It Rose seems. and Sons. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Rose and Sons, Fat Pasha, Swan. Fat Pasha's awesome. 
It's amazing. So yeah. I've been told. From what I've researched and seen, I have to. I've yet to go myself, but from my kind of Mediterranean roots and and stuff, it just looks uh, that cauliflower dish looks exceptional. So I'm excited to get out there. Yeah, Anthony Rose. He's becoming one of the more known chefs in the city. It only took him, you know, eight million restaurants to open in the city for him to get recognized. But that's kind of a Toronto thing. There's just so much going on. <clears throat> There's a lot of people that don't even don't make that don't make the connection that don't realize that a lot of the same restaurants are owned by restaurant groups, especially in this metropolitan city. Mm-hmm. And some are better than others. Well, to be an independent chef and open your own place in this city is a tough thing to do. You know, it's not it's not for the faint of heart and it's not for the um, empty of pocket. It takes a lot of hard work from origin to execution to actually successfully run that kind of ship. And it's, there's so much more to it than the food that you want. That concept you have is as great as it may be. Like you said, it's the people, the location. It's a, it's a combination of all these things, especially in Toronto. I feel that most of it is determined by location. For sure. Location is important. But sometimes, you know, look at College Street, which was kind of a dead zone for a while. I and mean, then- it's not anymore? Oh, no, because La Carnita went in a few years ago, and then Bar Isabel, and now Dilo, and Bar Raval, and Fat City Blues, and it's all, like, booming. College Street is doing better than it's done in 10 years. But when La Carnita first went in there, it could have been a flop just because he was in a kind of a crappy location. But he made that crew, and their their tacos became, it became a destination, and now it's just the streets just booming with great new restaurants. Yeah, Fat City Blues. So that's a, a, a barbecue restaurant. That's um like a New Orleans style jazz bar. Like they do pull boys and they do ribs. Yeah. It's really good. They have live music, live jazz bands all the time. It's an awesome place. That one is definitely gaining some traction over the last few months. They just had a big event this past weekend, I believe. Big outdoor party. They're in a great location. To me, College Street used to be dead zone Little Italy. And all these Italian restaurants that all the older communities from Toronto would help keep afloat. But eventually now with the gentrification in the neighboring neighborhoods, they're looking for something more hip. I mean, like like you said, La Cronita was kind of the start of that. And now you're seeing food styles that was never a Little Italy thing. It was mostly you're an Italian restaurant, College Street, head over there. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. you'd struggle. And now you see a lot of Italian restaurants fade away from the, we're a classic Italian place because that's not appealing anymore. It's not hip anymore. Uh, we had on the show John Sinopoli. Him and Eric Joyle have uh, a few places on the East End, one of which is Ascari Anoteca. We talk about that a lot because as far as Italian cooking goes, when you walk in there, it's, it doesn't seem like an Italian place per se. I mean, yes, it's an F1 theme. There's a lot of Italian wine. But as someone who's just walking in and getting served this quality ingredients locally sourced and has that uh, Italian appeal, to me, it's more of a Canadian appeal of a restaurant than say an Italian, even though, you know, it's all in Italian, you know, explanation and and on the menus translated in in Italian. When I went to Little Italy 10 years ago, it was the red and white checkered tablecloths. Yeah, the lady and the tramp. You know what I mean? And and that uh, my parents might have, even my parents thought that was getting dated in like the 90s. And I would actually like to see, 
one of a those resurgence? restaurants. Yeah. I mean, a throwback. It would be kind of fun. But would it be successful? I don't know. If the right people did it and they were in the right location, maybe. Well, or maybe it would be a flash in the pan that everybody thought was cool for five minutes and fades away. Who knows? What do you? Tr- what's the constant in all the successful restaurants that are in this city or any kind of other metropolitan city, what do you see that they're doing? Is it a the ability to price, to source? Is it the best chefs? Is it keeping oh, no. current? No, it would. If I knew that, I would be a, a mogul. Like I would have a thousand restaurants right now. I have no idea. But look at Jamie Kennedy, for example. What is he doing in every restaurant that? I mean, is Jamie successful with every restaurant he opens? Because look at the Gilead Cafe and Wine Bar. Even a a successful name like Jamie Kennedy, you would think that restaurant would still be open. Yeah, you would. (laughs) It's See, this is why it's a tough question because you never know what's going to be a hit or what's going to last. There are so many factors into making a restaurant work and there's no magic formula. As I said, if I knew it, I would have a lot of successful restaurants under me right now. Well, let's talk about one that you do work with, and that's the Drake Hotel. Mm -hmm. So, tell us how you got connected to the Drake Hotel. Tell us about 86th Mondays. Sure, yeah. Um, Well, when I was cooking, the last restaurant that I cooked at was the Drake Hotel when Anthony Rose was the head chef. And I was in that kitchen for a few years, and I was doing as much writing as I could just before my 10-year anniversary of being a cook, I snagged a job on a Food Network show and was able to leave the kitchen. But I I stuck on with the Drake, not as a cook anymore, but as the host of 86 Mondays, which is an industry event. They started about six years ago and asked me to host it. And I've been doing that ever since. And uh, basically what 86 Mondays is... If you work in the hospitality industry, your Friday is Monday night. And there's not there wasn't a lot to do in the city on Monday nights, so I started doing stuff. In a city like, like Toronto that has all these service industry workers must have been booming. Well, it took a while to get the word out, to get people coming out. Some of the more successful ones at the beginning were like the sustainable ceviche smackdown. Uh, which I do every year now. You know, the fried chicken battle is always a huge one. There's a lot of competitions. They're always fun. Like this Monday is the ice cream sandwich battle. Who do we have coming in? We have the Saint, the Rolling Pin, Sweet Olenka's, the Sweet Escape, and White Squirrel Cafe. Wow, that's a, a great range. And all of them, each one of them is bringing 150 bite-sized ice cream sandwiches. So that's, I think, six restaurants. There's a lot, a lot of little mini ice cream sandwiches to be had. It's always free. It's always open to the public. And it's at the Drake Hotel every Monday starting at 8 o'clock. There's no entrance fee. It is a night for industry, but it's also open to everyone. Because I had come from the kitchen being a cook, you know, with no money. Then I knew that the night had to have a free component so that people who actually cooked in other restaurants would be able to afford to come out and that is amazing. enjoy the night. And then there's free music in the basement afterwards for the Elvis Mondays at the Drake. They've changed the lineup of the underground's music, but uh, there is a live band in the lounge as soon as my event finishes. That's a great evening. Yeah. All, all in one great location too. So, you started there when you first moved here? No, I didn't. My first kitchen in Toronto was Mildred Pierce. Uh, when did you start there? Oh, I remember exactly because as I was coming into Toronto on a bus from Kingston, the bus driver pulled over and made an announcement and said he'd been listening to the radio and that a plane had just flown into the Twin Towers. And so that's that was September 11th, 2001. 
And uh, I came into the city, got to the apartment, and called Mildred Pierce to see if they would be open because that was going to be my first shift that day. And they said, yeah, we'll, we'll be open. So I went in and cleaned Calamari for a few hours, and then they decided to close because all the reservations canceled. So uh, that was kind of a crazy start at that restaurant. But uh, Since then, in, in the Drake and even before then, you've worked in some prominent and highly respected restaurants in the country and worked with a lot of people who have done so, such as Jamie Kennedy. Yeah, you yourself has, have kept a pretty... I wouldn't say low profile. I think you're you're really good at, at producing greatest hits. When you put something out there onto the internet, when you write, uh, when you've worked at certain places, especially this 86 Monday, you're really doing it right. And and I, and we talk about you being, you know, a, a mogul. Uh, it, it, I'm just saying jokingly, if you knew the trends uh, of all the things. But, I mean, everything I've read of yours, it doesn't sound like the same article I've read from you before. And, you know, it seems like all your ideas and all these different places that you've worked with, you still have this amazing ability to do what you want to do, whether it's writing, doing these cookbooks, this 86 Monday. I feel like you have this ability to, you know, manage yourself. People come to you. How do you achieve such, uh, you know, an important profile? I knew I didn't want to be in the kitchen anymore. I knew I had to work my butt off to get out of there. And I knew I wanted to write. So I've been writing ever since. Writing, much like cooking, doesn't pay very well. So I've been doing 86 ever since as well. And then I was doing the cookbooks because it's all about trying to keep your head above water. It's not about trying to be insanely busy. but It's just about, you know, paying the rent. So always doing as many projects as possible. How did you start writing for, say, Vice and, and Munchies? You know, did, did you approach them? That relationship started with Patrick McGuire, who is the head of all things uh, Canadian Vice. I met him through a friend, Maddie Matheson, who has a show on Munchies, Keep It Canada. Parts and Labors. Yep, yep. And um, Patrick, I wanted uh, some people from Vice to come and judge my first fried chicken battle. And so Patrick and his buddy Steve Phelan, who also works there, sorry, Sean Phelan, uh, they jumped at the chance to come in and judge. And then we got to talking and then Patrick told me that Munchies would be uh, launching soon and that they needed some Canadian food writers. And he put me in touch with my editor, Helen, in New York. And that's how that all began. Who do you think Munchies' audience is? I'll tell you, <laughs> because <laughs> when I got hooked up with Helen Holliman, I was, you know, I was excited to write for Vice because I'd been a fan for years. Um, but everything I pitched her just didn't, she was said no to everything. And I was tearing my hair out. I said, I really don't know what you want. Like, I don't know what to give you. And she said, you are not writing a story for, you know, your chef buddies or people in the industry. You're writing a story that will interest a skateboarder in Bushwick broad appeal it can't just be you know super super niche super insider so it took a while to get some pitches past her but now i can do it a bit better do you think they promote a rock and roll fetishized version of the restaurant industry maybe when they first started when when all they had was the show munchies then maybe they did but they the content has grown so much i think they're showing very diverse giving everyone a very diverse look into how the industry works now. 
do you think they have helped make the industry exciting again? Maybe that's what it was lacking. You know, I feel like by reading Kitchen Confidential, it seems like Anthony Bourdain has been kind of doing this rock and roll version of the restaurant industry since the 80s. But since Vice has come around, we've all caught up. Yeah. And I think if if it, if Vice was only focusing on the rock and roll or the bad boy or whatever, they would run, it would get tiring tiring and yeah. and that's not the way the world is now i mean there's a group in toronto 10 years ago you never would th- have thought something like this would fly but nike started um a running group for chefs wow so they're on instagram i think they're called the food runners and you see all these chefs running at 6 a.m you know and then sharing smoothies whereas you know maybe 10 years ago they'd be finishing off an eight ball. and So, let's talk about the story that was just released in the Toronto Star that you wrote for Munchies. Uh, it was titled, What It's Like to Be Attacked by Your Sous Chef. Mm-hmm. So, I'm very intrigued by this subject matter. It's funny because abuse in the kitchen, be it verbal or physical abuse, shouldn't occur in any workplace. And when I say the word funny, I say it because we see it on a regular basis today on television. For example, Gordon Ramsay, known quote-unquote friendly bully who berates chefs and women specifically on a nightly basis on the Food Network or a national broadcaster. We see it day in and day out, and it's almost become this acceptable bullying when it comes into the real world that you've dealt with, not only is it not funny, but it's so serious. And I feel that as much as you can appreciate Gordon Ramsay, it kind of discredits anything that he does. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences, this article, and um, why we're here talking about it and trying to bring light to a very interesting and important topic? The article was about the time I was assaulted by my sous chef where he threw me down and choked me until I was able to escape, which was a pretty shitty, shitty uh, experience. And that was the worst example of abuse I dealt with, you know, in my career. I don't think that's the norm. The yelling and the, the bad behavior, you can find that in a lot of kitchens. But I worked, I've worked in many where that that didn't exist. And I mean, I've been talking about this a lot ever since the article came out. I think that having this conversation and getting it out into the open and um, having a conference like the one Jen Ag is putting on on September 3rd, uh, Kitchen Bitches, I think that getting all this out in the open and getting everyone talking about it is very helpful. The more chefs who decide they're not going to allow that behavior in their kitchen, then the more cooks are going to learn it's not acceptable and they're going to grow up and go on to other kitchens and it'll, you know, it'll evolve. But if you don't shed any light on something, it just gets, keeps festering away. So I know with, um, with a chef like Anthony Rose, you know, and Anthony Walsh, who's at the, uh, with Oliver and Bonaccini, there are two chefs that I worked for who they rule their kitchens through respect. They don't have to say a word. They don't have to raise their voice. You want to do the best job you can for them because you love them so much and you respect them and because they're so wonderful to work for. And everyone who works under those, 
in those conditions, takes that away with them to the next place. And so hopefully it spreads and, and more people grow up and stop with the misogynist jokes and stop with whatever. Yeah, why do you think that exists, though? Is that just because it's a patriarchal hierarchy in it's the a industry? Macho in, it's a macho scene. It's a, a really brutal job. You know, it's not a glamorous job. Society has decided that it that it is that you can be, you know, a celebrity. But the actual work of a day-to-day kitchen, there's no glamour. You know, it's tough, brutal work. So when you're in that kind of a a world that's, you know, male-dominated and everybody's grunting away, you know, trying to get the job done, it's it's sort of like the basest humor flies. There's no time for nuance or real conversation or understanding. It's sort of just juvenile, childish, misogynist humor is what is what you get a lot of. And you wrote this original article 13 years ago. The incident happened 13 years ago. I wrote the article for Munchies a few months ago. So you've been holding on to this mm. for 13 years. And then my editor was asking about something sort of memoir-ish. And I thought of that. And I thought I could write it up just as a cautionary tale and not name any names because I didn't feel like there was any point in bringing up any names after 13 years. And then um, then I saw an article in the Toronto Star about the abuse that was happening at a... a West Lodge, at Kate West Burnham. Lodge. And Did I you saw, talk to Kate? Have you no, spoke, reached I, out? No, I haven't. No, I just saw that Donna Dewar was quoted as sort of the um, respectable head of Restaurants Canada saying that she didn't really think it was much of a problem, that it could be, you know, it could be solved through dialogue or some bullshit. So I got furious and I got in touch with the editor or the, sorry, the writer of the Toronto Star piece, Michelle Henry, and uh, just directed her to the Munchies piece and said, if you're wondering who the restaurant owner is in this article, it's Donna Dewar. And she's a hypocrite. So that's why Michelle wrote that piece. If you had any advice for Kate Burnham now, what would it be? There's, (laughs) she was in a horrible situation. She's, I think it's good that she's come out with it. I think maybe that's the best advice is there's no reason to stay silent. And there's this weird thing we have in our culture where look at the Bill Cosby rape saga where so many women had come forward and everybody said that they were lying or making it up to get attention. Really, when you think about that, who on earth would want to get attention with a story about being raped or a story where they're a victim? Why would anyone in their right mind want that? And so now we've got 27 women, so finally they're starting to believe them. But he still hasn't been charged. So saying that Kate waited too long or that I waited too long to come up with this, it's like, I didn't feel like, geez, I really wish everyone knew my name. So I guess I'll go to the star and make up a story about being choked 13 years ago. And then I'll be cool and popular. Like, are you kidding? No, that's not women don't yearn to be seen as victims. Nobody does. Nobody does. Nobody does. The reaction is always that you're doing this just to get attention and that it didn't really happen. Well, thank you for talking to us about that subject. I know it must be tough and um, all the best to all all the the future chefs and and especially the women that are, are dealing with this old school 
premise, let's let's switch up our, our topics of conversation. I'm really interested in the in the people that you've interviewed. So tell us a little bit about Swallow, how that started, and you know some of the amazing chefs that you've touched. I mean, just to name a few: Daniel Hum, Thomas Keller, Dave McMillan. I would love to hear stories about Martin Picard. I have such a soft spot for Martin Picard. So tell us about Swallow, how that started. Again, you're working with your husband. Yeah, um, I started Swallow a few years ago, and I really just started it because I wanted an outlet where I could put stories that my editors weren't interested in. Traveling around the, the States or whenever I would travel, you know, a Toronto editor didn't necessarily want a story about a trip to Massachusetts or whatever the case. So I decided to just have my own outlet where I could put whatever I wanted. Um, as far as people I've interviewed, yeah, there have been a lot. Martin Picard, I was actually still cooking and we did a James Beard dinner at the Drake Hotel with Joe Beef, Opied de Cochon, and Rob Feeney years ago. So I got to be in the kitchen with not Dave McMillan, but Fred, Fred Moran and Martin Picard. And it was a hilarious, crazy night. I bet. I, one of the fuzzy memories from the after party was me humping Martin Picard's leg <laughs> for some reason. For those of you who don't know what Martin Picard looks like, he's like a big dude. He's like a tree. Yeah, he's like a big grizzly bear. He's have hilarious. you been to the Sugar Shack? I have not. No, I've, I've been to Pied de Cochon. It's amazing. What was it like interviewing Anthony Bourdain? Anthony Bourdain was amazing. Um, I've interviewed him, I think, three times now. The first time was over the phone, and he was at the Chateau Marmont drinking a beer and uh that was very surreal but he was just such a awesome engaging guy and then um i interviewed him i i hosted his book launch when he released medium raw that i hosted at 86 at the drake and that was very cool bourdain is an awesome guy what are some of your favorite restaurant tours that we haven't talked about today restaurant owners restaurant owners or chefs or people that are quite big players in the industry today you want me to tell you some of my favorites please well there are some chefs that are holding down some pretty big operations like Stuart Cameron is with the icon group and he's overseeing stuff at Biblos and Patria and now all of their restaurants, and then somebody like Rob Gentile, who's heading up Buca and Buca Yorkville and Bar Buca, just all amazing restaurants, doing consistently fantastic. Uh, so we're we're lucky to have guys like that. And then there's some really awesome, you know, young chefs coming up right now, like um, Sonia Marwick was was sous chef at Fat Pasha, and now she's got her first head chef position at Swan by Rosenson. So it's fun to see the new kids on the scene and and see how the the landscape will change. I uh, would also add a couple to that list. Ramjit Tilly with the restaurant group that does The Saint, Jacob's Steakhouse. Yeah, that's the Buka guys. Right? Yes. Those are the, that's the same restaurant group. That yeah. right, they're they're doing something right. I don't know oh, if yeah. it's if it's service or if it's just this overall appeal when you first walk into these places, you feel like a true patron. There's a lot of places in the city and a lot of major cities that don't know how to treat their guests 
properly. And that to me speaks wonders compared to their food. Their food could be the best thing in the world. But if I don't feel comfortable, if I don't feel like I should be there, I'm not going to enjoy anything. I'm going to be so much more critical. And I feel that the Buka Group is definitely, do you know the name of their restaurant group that they go? Is it called the Buka Group? I don't know the name of it. It doesn't matter. Jacob's Steakhouse too, just on a next level. If you can afford it, Mm -hmm. it's the best restaurant in my opinion in the city because it has, it's rounded out everything, service, quality of food, service is immaculate. Like it's a little ridiculous when you get it. You're, you're, and that's what I feel like you're paying for. Uh, I'd rather pay a few extra dollars to know that I'm being treated by the right people who have the right experience than fresh off culinary school or, you know, all these these kids. I feel like the industry gets younger and younger sometimes. It's a very tough industry and a lot of the new hires are trying to keep a lot of up and coming chefs afloat. And as much as they need them, I think like you said before, it's it's a certain atmosphere in today's restaurants. It's not as, I don't know if the word is safe, but there's a lot of egos. There's a lot of people who, who see this food network kind of rock star, fetishized, munchies appeal, even the, like you said, the, the beginning of it. And they think, you know, I'm going to get into this. I'm going to party every night. I'm going to drink at every service. I'm going to go do drugs afterwards. <laughs> and they don't realize you're on your feet for 15 hours. You know, you can't think of drinking or, or consuming anything other than maybe a McDonald's sandwich after this because you hate food in that very moment between finishing service and realizing you're hungry. The last thing you want to do is cook for yourself or drink or, you know what I mean? Like it's- Oh it's, no, you want to drink. Well, maybe drink. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but other than that- what, when you were first getting into the industry, what, what did you want to achieve? What were, you, what were you excited about doing that you didn't think Toronto necessarily was doing? I didn't think that way. I just uh, wanted to be, you know, part of a good crew and just like slam it out and get it done. I didn't think about my future. I was just a little punk working the line. Well, I think you nailed it, actually. The crew. Mm-hmm. It really takes a full team effort, front to house and back, to make a restaurant a step above the rest. It's amazing how your front of house, your host, your server, your manager, how much of an important role they play before the food even comes out. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you about um, two people that are wonderful in that role, sort of as host slash manager. Uh, One is Chris Sheiky, who along with Corey Vitello and Dave Mitten has the Harbor Room, THR and Co. And now he's they've just opened Flock Rotisserie and Greens. Chris Sheiky is an amazing front of house guy, an incredible manager, just really welcoming, awesome guy. And then another place that's doing it right is Edulis, which is owned by Toby Namath and her husband, Michael Caballo. And Toby comes from the kitchen. She was head chef at Jamie Kennedy's wine bar years ago, but now she's front of house. She does help in the kitchen, but during service, she's front of house and she's the embodiment of perfection uh, making people feel welcome. And she just does it so effortlessly. Edulis is a fantastic experience. It's rated number seven nationally in Canada. My go Anytime somebody wants a recommendation for a place to celebrate something, I send them there. Or it's Canoe. Actually, canoe it's is right around the corner here. Yeah, the OMB guys, Bannock, Biff's Bistro, I, I'm a big fan of. I used to cook at Biff's Bistro. Really? Yes. Just on the line? Yep. Great. Yep, I was Garbanger, and before I left, I had moved up to, I think I was Tourneau when I left there, or just Poissonnier, I'm not sure, but I've spent a few years there. Do you think people that are getting into the industry now could go the same route? They don't necessarily need to go to George Brown here in Toronto. They can just throw themselves in the mix and learn. That's the advice I 
give anyone who asks. Throw yourself into it and see if you like it. See if you can handle it. At least do that before applying to culinary school. Instead, you know, going straight to school and then getting real life experience after all that debt is kind of crazy because it's a job that you can't really understand how hard it is until you've done it. Like go get a summer job working the line in a busy kitchen. It doesn't matter if it's fine dining or not. And if you can handle that and you like it, keep working or go to school. I mean, do whatever you want. I personally would not advise going to school and just find find a, a chef that you look up to and that you want to learn from. You're very punk rock. You're very <laughs> DIY. The world that we live in now, you look at all these people, the student loan debts are staggering. No one has jobs. Everyone's an unpaid intern. Why the fuck would you go to school? It's so expensive. It's crazy. You're going to get paid nothing forever as a cook. You're not going to start making real human, adult human money until you're a sous chef. And you don't become a sous chef for a long time. So, yeah, don't go to school. Well, you heard it here, folks. All right. Well, I'm going to wrap this up with a, a quick lightning round. And uh, I hope you can, we'll, we'll keep it to Toronto, but I'm going to ask you a few of your favorites and, and some other things amongst the questions. What's your favorite late night snack? Um, I don't know. <laughs> What's your signature dish? My signature dish? Clam chowder. We can always go back. We can always okay. go back. We can always go back. What's like a secret ingredient of yours? Like you'll just add it to something you know it's going to like help help your dish out. Vinegar, honey, and uh, currants are three things that I always have on hand. Great ones. Great ones. My new thing right now is French onions. Are those the deep fried onions Yeah, in those a deep can? fried onions in a can. Okay. Bachelor cooking to the- That's a good great. one. Favorite late night snack? Um, I, I really love this dip called Hell of a Good Dip. Yeah, the cheese dip. It's so good. <laughs> I think they sponsor NASCAR or something. You, like, you, you kind of like scorned a little at my French onions and then you rock in the hell of a dip. No, no, I didn't. I'm not scorning- or scoffing at your scoffing, French onions. I've word. never had. Uh, I've never had them. I've seen them, but I'll have to try those. At Honestly, some point. I add them to my tuna, my tuna salad. Next level. I'm giving away a big secret right now. Favorite bar. My favorite bar. Well, I spend a lot of time at the Drake Hotel in the wow. lounge, and Gord Hanna is my favorite bartender in the city. I tell him all my troubles, and he solves all my problems. He does, does he? I really. Oh, I love cold tea. Cold tea is super fun, especially in the so summer. Cool. Yeah, Sunday afternoons venue. at cold tea, that's that's a great place to be. Favorite cocktail? Um, I am not a cocktail connoisseur, although I'm good friends with so many eminent mixologists in this city. They all have to uh, put up with me ordering bourbon and Coke. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite pizza topping? Um, it's not environmentally sustainable, but I really love getting dirty pizza with spinach, feta, and shrimp. Oh. It's a weird combination, but I love it. And it's, you know, there's shrimp that have been grown up in bleach baths in Thailand. So they're not exactly the best ingredient. But other than that, I usually just go for a margarita. Favorite burger topping? I really love Russian dressing on a burger. Ugh. So the Drake Hotel is my favorite burger. Oh, really? You know, uh, Jesse Valens has a pretty close to a Reuben sandwich and a burger combination going on over there too. At also the Saint. Also the Buka family. Yeah, at the Saint. Yeah, I'll have to try Jesse's burger. So but for good. this week, I'll be trying his ice cream sandwich That's on right. Sunday. That's what on I, Monday. I heard that. That's the connection I'm making here. Pizza or burger? I would always go for a burger. 
Why? I've been a cheeseburger fanatic since birth. What food is totally overdone? Oh, I don't know. Can you overdo a food? I guess if you need to fill some space in the lifestyle section of the paper, you can say something's overdone. Which they do every week. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't personally like macarons, so I could say they're overdone, but people like them, so who cares? I, I think I would almost agree with you there. That's a good one because that's kind of overshadowed. And the thing is, the difference between a macaron and a good macaron is like night and day. It's I'm, I'm a big fan of Nadej on uh, in Trinity. Oh, she Bumble. does beautiful stuff. That's Amazing. like an art gallery of, it of is. dessert. It's like a museum yeah. that you get to eat. Mm-hmm. All right, last but not least, late night Korean or late night Chinese? Um, that's tough. I would go with the Chinese because I love, uh, I love cold tea and not the bar, the concept. Well, thank you very much, Ivy Knight, for joining us here on Speaking Duck. You can catch basically what a uh, uh, publication from the bi-weekly every week from swallow daily uh swallow we've got stuff going up all the time it's always random that's great swallowdaily.com uh plug your twitter your social media sure yeah on twitter i'm ivy knight and on instagram we're at swallow daily and you've written for Toronto Star, Toronto Life, Munchies. Just search Ivy Knight in Google. And that's with a, a K, a night with a K. Yes. Thank you so much for coming today. You're uh, a real inspiration. As somebody who's who's trying to do this themselves and trying to talk to the people of the city, you're quite an influential person. So thank you very much for coming on to Speaking Duck. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. 